Thank you, Pastor Tim. Good morning to each of you. It's good. It's good to be with you. It's good to be together. It's always a joy and treat to have the opportunity to open God's Word. It's good to be together too, knowing we missed an hour last night, right? For some of us, that's a little more difficult than others, right? We needed that extra cup of coffee this morning. I know this is Miss Jan's favorite Sunday of the year, right, Jan? I'm just looking forward to tonight, wondering how that's going to go when the kids say, but Daddy, it's still light outside. So that ought to be interesting. But it is good to be together. Guests, again, welcome. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. If you're with us most weeks, you know we typically preach straight through a book of the Bible. We start at the beginning of a book and, and preach straight through. Well, this morning is going to be a little bit different. Time to time, we do preach a more topical sermon or bring a message from, a, from an isolated passage of Scripture. And my hope this morning is that as we focus in on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in particular verses 11 through 21, that we'll embrace together all that God has done for us in Christ, and that we leave as those who are changed, those unable to contain the glorious news of this great exchange. Paul is the author. We know him to be the author of 2 Corinthians. It's actually his fourth letter that he's written to the Corinthians. And it's a letter that is filled with deep passion and deep emotion. He's writing with an aim to establish the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry and the legitimacy of the message that's connected with that ministry, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. The context in which Paul is writing this letter, as he writes from there in Macedonia, it's a context for him where suffering is a reality. Suffering is a reality. Previously, Paul thought he would witness the return of Christ prior to his death. But now, as Paul writes this letter, he's not so sure. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, listen to these words of Paul there. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul faced suffering. He dealt with suffering. And he says there in chapter 5 at the beginning that his greater desire is to be at home with the Lord for this suffering to cease and for Christ to usher in the kingdom in all of its fullness. But while in the body, while he remains in the body, he makes it his aim to please the Lord. He wants to please the Lord. He desires to please his God, realizing all that God has done for him. And he realizes that he and everyone will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 there, he says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one may receive, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good 
or evil. So as we get going this morning in this sermon from this passage of Scripture, I just want to ask you this question. Friend, what is your aim this morning? What, what is the trajectory of your life? According to Paul, according to the Apostle Paul and the Word of God, a life that does not aim to please God is in an extremely perilous predicament. Not only does it rob you of true joy and true delight in the here and now, but in the world to come, it will result in eternal despair. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day, this time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are a people who gather around your word. And week in and week out, the preacher stands up here before you, not behind his own cleverness and insight, but behind the very word of God. Father, I pray that you, uh, through me, your messenger, speak to us your words this morning. For our good and your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the main point I want us to see and take away this morning. It's that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are the recipients of a glorious exchange. Christ took upon Himself our sin and we received His righteousness. So we in Christ are the recipients of a great and glorious exchange. Christ taking upon Himself our sin and we receiving His righteousness. As we walk through these verses this morning, I want us to consider three questions together. Three questions that I believe as we consider and think about in the life and ministry of Paul and then cross the bridge from his life, his ministry to ours, our culture, our context today, we will see great similarity and find a great deal of help. Three questions. What is the motivation behind Paul's ministry? What motivates him? What drives him as he ministers? And then secondly, what is the content of his message? And then finally, what is the result? What motivates Paul? What's the content of his message? And what is the result? Look there with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What is Paul's motivation? What drives him as he ministers, as he writes this fourth 
and final letter to the Corinthians there. Where we see in verse 11, Paul is motivated by a healthy fear of the Lord. He realizes that holiness comes about in the fear of God. He's also motivated by a concern for the heart. Paul realizes that true transformation is something that takes place on the inside and then demonstrates outward evidence. Outward behavior alone, or as Paul calls it, outward appearance, can never transform the heart. Paul commends himself. He's commending himself. He's defending the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry because there were so many thought of him to be less than adequate. They thought he wasn't sufficient. They thought his weaknesses, you know, your weaknesses, Paul, you've suffered too much. That doesn't warrant a legitimate apostolic ministry. The irony is, that's the very thing for Paul that established its legitimacy. We know there are some familiar verses, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, where he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's opponents, they were concerned more with outward appearance. They cared about lineage visions, revelations. And even though Paul had some of this, he experienced some special divine revelations. He never used those to justify his authority. Instead, it was in the gospel and the power of Christ and Christ alone. That was Paul's boast. He was also motivated by the reality of verse 15 in his own life. That Christ died for all. And that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This gripped Paul. It transformed his life. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, we know Paul was one who despised and did all he could to persecute Christians. He was committed to his own personal agenda. And folks, that's true for each and every one of us. That is our dilemma. That's the human predicament. We are committed to our own agenda. Even after coming to faith in Christ, we know it's a battle. It's a struggle daily to put off the old self, to put on the new, to be who we are in Christ. Consider with me the name for just just a few moments. The name of Mark Zuckerberg. Now, for those of you my age and younger, there may be some name recognition here. Maybe not. For those my age and a little bit older, you may not have a clue. Who in the world are you talking about? Um, Well, Mark is the creator and founder of Facebook. Facebook, a, a social media phenomenon. Mark is an extremely bright and gifted and very interesting person. He's given away tons of money, tons of his personal wealth to to various charities, organizations, and causes. He's joined together with with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates on this giving pledge where they and other wealthy people commit to giving away significant percentages of their wealth. His mission is to make the world more open, more connected. And on the face of it, 
Mark doesn't sound like someone fundamentally oriented to living for himself. It sounds like he's living for others. We know Mark is a worshiper. In just a few minutes of research online, I was able to read about his atheism, uh, his former Buddhist leanings, and then apparently a recent conversion to Islam. He is one who is interested spiritually. He has a spiritual essence. I'm not certain what he would say today if you were to ask him about his personal faith. But here is what we do know about him. He bears the image of God. He's searching for something. He desires to be helpful and to make a difference in the world. And yet, apart from Christ, he's fundamentally oriented to living for himself. If the glory is not being transferred to Christ, it ultimately remains devoted to the kingdom of self. Just think about that again for a minute. If if the glory in our lives doesn't get transferred to Christ, there is no other place for it to go than back to self. It, it ultimately remains about us and our kingdom. And therefore, anyone in this predicament is fundamentally at odds with God. John Piper puts it like this, Wrath remains on us as long as there is no faith in Jesus. Each of our journeys are unique. For some of us, the external evidence post-conversion is obvious. Our lives before Christ and our lives after look radically different. For others of us in Christ, maybe not on the face of it so, so radically different. But for each of us, every one of us who is in Christ, there should be some obvious noticeable differences. To go from living for oneself to looking out not only for self but the interests of others, that's going to make a significant difference. And Paul realizes this. He's one who is deeply changed by the power of Jesus Christ and this provides great motivation for him as he desires to share the transforming power of the gospel with others. Let's continue on there in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh... We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul 
once regarded Christ according to the flesh. That is, is, is just merely human. He's not the true Messiah. He believed that the curse of God was upon him. As it says there in Galatians 3.13, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But not now. Not here. Not as he's writing this letter. His eyes have now been opened. And he now sees Christ for who he is. The one and only true Son of God with the authority and power to defeat sin and death and to completely transform his life. Paul realizes that he is a new creation in Christ and that all those who are in Christ are new creations as well. And he also realizes that the best way to embody being a new creation of the new covenant was to live for Christ by living for others. To live for Christ by living for others. That's Paul's drive. That's his motivation. Well, what's the content? Our second question this morning, what is the content of his message? And I think we get the content in verse 21. We see it there in verse 21. Verse 21 is an amazing verse. It is super packed with truth and with doctrine. And it's the content of Paul's message. And it was as countercultural in Paul's day as it is today in ours. Folks, in this verse, we get the gospel. And to get the gospel, we have to see both substitution and imputation. We need to see both substitution and imputation. Substitution, that, that's a word we're more familiar with. From time to time we have a substitute teacher or uh, we need to put a substitute player in for us out on the field. But imputation, that, that's not common vocabulary that we typically use in our day-to-day interactions, right? Well, well, think of it like this. I think this is a helpful way to think of it. Think of it like pouring. Imputation is like pouring. If I've got two cups and the one cup has water in it and the other cup is empty and I pour the water from cup A over here to cup B, that is imputation. It's pouring the liquid substance out from one cup into another. In the same way that Christ receives our sin, our sin is poured out on Him, we receive His righteousness. A a double imputation takes place. Our sin is imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. We receive what is an alien righteousness. And Christ receives something that's alien to His nature. Namely, sin. It's important to, to consider Christ, He doesn't become a sinner But instead, He stands in our stead and bears the penalty for our sin. We don't become sinless, but we do become those who in Christ are credited with His righteousness. The amazing truth of this verse, the amazing truth of verse 21, is that in Christ, we are accepted before God as if we had never sinned. We're accepted like we had never sinned. The German theologian uh, Zacharias Ursinus, who, who helped pen the Heidelberg Catechism, he puts it like this. 
God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Throughout history, Christians have referred to this doctrine as the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And in a recent book entitled, Pierce for Our Transgressions, they they summarize the doctrine this way. They say this, The doctrine of penal substitution states that God gave Himself in the person of His Son to suffer instead of us the death and punishment and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. What an amazing exchange. What a glorious exchange. Think of it like this. It's like we're seated in a courtroom. And we're seated there before God the judge. With our life laid completely out before Him. And we're clearly guilty. Clearly without defense. And then from out of the back of the courtroom, someone walks in and says, Sir, hold on. Hold on just a second. You can place that on me instead. I'll take it in their place. Even though I have done no wrong, you can put the punishment on me instead. In the same manner that Christ receives our sin, we receive His righteousness. And we're only made the righteousness of God based upon the grounds of Christ being made sin. That, that's the content. That's the core of Paul's message. And that, that is the gospel. So what is the result? What does all this mean for Paul? What, what does it do in his life? And, and how should it impact ours? Well, let's look back there at verses 18 through 20. As we see there that those changed by this message become ministers of this message. They are those entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Paul becomes an ambassador for Christ, an agent of reconciliation. In his remaining days, they are spent living for Christ by living for others, pointing others to the only means by which they might be reconciled to God through Christ and Christ alone. If we were to move forward there in chapter 6 this morning, we would see that Paul continues on in this letter reminding the Corinthians to not receive the grace of God in vain, but to consider that today, now, today is the day of salvation. And that's true for us as well. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've not received this amazing gift, if this glorious exchange has not transformed your life, then I hope these words of Paul are an encouragement to you. Today is the day of salvation. God did this all for our sake. Think about that verse again, verse 21. It starts, for our sake. He made Him to be sin. And those first three words, for our sake, those words presume two other key things that we know from the rest of the Scriptures. Namely, that God is God. And there is no other. God is holy. He's perfect. He's just. And it also assumes something about us, right? That we're 
sinners. We've fallen short of His standard. So for our sake, we need, we desperately need what God has done for us in Christ. And if you're here this morning and if you've never received it, oh, might you experience the reality of having your sins atoned for, the promise of living forever and not incurring the wrath of Almighty God that awaits those without a mediator. Well, in Paul's day, if we were to continue on in this letter, we would see many do actually repent. They repent. They turn. They receive Paul's message. Others did not. And we know that many in our day reject this message. Consider with me this morning four different people, four fictional people just that I've made up, uh, but four people who I think, as we think about our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends, we, we may hear similar, similar things. Four faulty responses to this great exchange. First, consider with me Fred. Fred has a fundamentalist background. He believes the gospel is the reality that he's saved by the blood of Jesus. But after this, Fred thinks it's up to him to pull things off. His belief system tells him that God is pleased with him for what he does and does not do. That's how he earns God's favor, for what he does and does not do. Second, there's Pam. She believes the gospel has to do with praying a prayer. And then after that, some folks take it seriously and they're real committed. And other folks, you know, they're they're just not so serious. According to Pam, there are no real substantial differences between the two groups, except that maybe the serious folks have more peaceful, frequent religious experiences. And then there's Larry. Larry, he he thinks the cross was a great example of human sacrifice and love. And he also believes that we should love all people and that the way we do this is by accepting them as they are, without making any exclusive truth claims upon their lives. And then finally, there's Susie. Susie maintains a secular worldview. She thinks Christianity is essentially about living a good, traditional life. Being born again means you must be conservative and republican. Susie's experience of Christians is that, by and large, they're not really any more moral than those holding other belief systems. And at times, they're actually less moral. Four four people, four different responses to this great exchange. How, How are we to respond? Well, let's think back on the core content of Paul's message and consider how might we speak the truth in love. Uh, with convictional kindness to these responses. First, remember this. God accepts us in Christ, not based on what we do and do not do, but based upon what Christ has done. That, that is radical. God accepts us in Christ. He accepts you and I in Christ, not based on what we do, and what we don't do, but solely based upon what Christ has done. Yes, fundamentalist Fred is right. The message of the gospel is what brings us into the fold. It is what makes us part of the family of God. 
But once we're there, our acceptance doesn't become based on what we do and don't do. It's still based on what Christ has done. And the truth of this this good news, this glorious gospel, it's the very thing that God uses to conform us to His image. He uses it to secure us and to keep us in the faith. The process of being sanctified, growing in Christ, that process is a process of learning to live in light of who we are. It's learning to live in light of who we now are. It has to do with not forgetting the clothes that we're now wearing. It's remembering all that has been done for us. All that Christ has done to move us from being alien outsiders to adopted sons and daughters of the King. We should never tire, never lose a sense of awe and wonder as we consider this great exchange. Pam, remember Pam, essentially... Christianity is about praying a prayer and after that, is there really much difference between those who do and don't? Well, what she misses is the very fact that anyone who is converted to Christ is changed by Christ. They, as Paul says earlier, they no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and was raised. Every believer, every believer takes his or her faith seriously. And this very truth is what marks a healthy church. We know this to be true. Those who are not as serious, or not as serious Christians, if that can be a a category, that they don't find a place in a healthy local church. And it's not because serious Christians are unloving or unwelcoming. It's because there's no place for a nominal Christian to hide out in a healthy local church. Now this doesn't mean some of us don't have more scars than others. Sin has affected us all. It's affected us all deeply. Some more deeply than others. Uh, But nonetheless, it's affected us all. And some of us are going to be further along in our maturity. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't all have a serious commitment to the gospel and the ministry of sharing the gospel. That should be serious and important to every believer. Larry again wants to love and accept all as they are and to put any exclusive truth claims upon someone for Larry uh, would not be something he would want to do. Well, essentially what he wants to do is to retain the beautiful nature of the gospel and fail to accept its offensive nature as well. The work of Christ on the cross, it is both beautiful and offensive. And if it ceases to be both, it ceases to be the gospel. What Christ did is a beautiful demonstration of love and sacrifice. And had He not done it, we would be those without defense, without hope before holy God. But it's offensive to many because substitution is absolutely necessary. And not just substitution, penal substitution. Christ incurring the penalty, the judgment we deserve because of our guilt before God. Loving people as they are by not sharing with them their need for Christ is not love. Calvin says this, When we contemplate God without a mediator, We cannot conceive of Him otherwise than as angry with us. 
Let me read that again. When we contemplate, consider God without a mediator, we cannot conceive of Him otherwise than as angry with us. A mediator interposed between us makes us feel that He is pacified towards us. Folks, our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, they're at enmity with God apart from Christ. And the question is, do we love them enough to share that with them? Ultimately, we can't impose, we can't coerce our values upon anyone. But it would be unloving to not share with them how one unfavorably inclined can become favorably inclined towards them. Finally, let's go back to secular Susie. Secular Susie is correct about the sad reality that sometimes those who profess the name of Christ, they actually bring dishonor to His name. But Christianity, it's not about one political party or one human system over another. I like how Scott Saul says it in a recent book he wrote, Jesus Outside the Lines. He says this, Unless a human system is fully centered on God, which no human system is, Jesus will have things to affirm and things to critique about it. So any human system, Jesus is going to have things to affirm and things to critique about it. There is no good life apart from Christ. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. And as good and as noble and as philanthropic as Mark Zuckerberg strives to be, he is fundamentally at odds with God apart from Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, that reality is true for you as well. You are at odds with God. Think about this. Just just consider this, folks, for a moment. God considers us in Christ as those who have never sinned. He considers us as those who've never sinned. Acceptance that is full and free and complete and unhindered. And I know this is, it's, t- it's hard at times to fully get our minds around, right? And fully grasp. At times for us on the horizontal, in our interactions with other friends, family, co-workers, unconditional love, it's something we feel like we have to earn, right? To get the... the favor of parents and grandparents and even God's favorite times his acceptance it can seem for us impossible and by no means do I want to minimize the the pain and the time and the work it takes to heal from relational wounds I I realize one sermon is not going to resolve what for some will take significant time with a godly friend or counselor or pastor to fully realize and embrace the acceptance that is yours in Christ. But what I do know is this. There is no other acceptance like it. There's no other acceptance like it. No other context where you can heal from the hurt and, and some of the damage that's been caused by others in your life than the acceptance your Heavenly Father extends to you in Christ. It is truly amazing acceptance. It is amazing grace. Let me take it just one step further. What does this have to do with our sanctification, with our growth? If you were to think, okay, Chad, so you're saying 
In Christ, there's this great exchange. He takes my sin. I receive His righteousness. Well, what does that mean for me the rest of today, tomorrow? How does that help me grow? Well, let me give just one example, if I can, in my own life. How how does it help a believer who struggles with a particular sin? When Holly and I first met, my clothes, the clothes I wore, they were a little bit too big. I was probably just a little bit too casual. For many of you I've shared that we met serving in children's ministry together. And I liked to wear baggy jeans, baggy pants, shirts that kind of swallowed me, my Chuck Taylor shoes. Hey, for me, comfortable was comfortable, right? It was loose and comfortable. It's a wonder she stuck with me, right? But as I've grown and matured, I now aim to pick and wear clothes that fit. Although from time to time, I may still revert back to old ways. If I'm honest, our first year of marriage was tough. It was a tough first year. We both had not so great, challenging, trying jobs. I had an entry-level job in county mental health in Mecklenburg County. She was teaching special ed in the public schools. And so we just, you know, it wasn't quite what we saw ourselves doing, uh, following school. And in many ways, we were looking to the other person to make us happy. I could be moody and irritable at times. I didn't always speak in ways that built her up. Instead of wholesome talk, often unwholesome talk was what proceeded from my mouth. Well, here's how I believe this truth of of the imputed righteousness of Christ, how it's helped me over the years. I realize now I'm a child of God. I am one who has been clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. I'm accepted by Him. Therefore, to speak in ways that refuse to build up, that's not fitting for a child of God. It's not who I am anymore. God has done so much for me in Christ. My identity, my worth, it's found in Him. It's not ultimately found in a job or a spouse who does or does not accept for me or who does or does not do certain things for me. Just like I don't wear clothes that are too big for me anymore, so too it's not fitting for me to cast an irritable, negative cloud over my marriage. It's not fair to look to my spouse for my happiness. You see how this can work? You see how it can can translate into very specific, very practical things in our lives. This is just one example applied to my life, but it can be applied to many other things, things in your life as well. Folks, there's so much, so much we can bank on as we consider the implications of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And just to say again, if you're hearing some of this, you're thinking and you're processing things, These kind of truths, I really believe they sometimes need more time with a trusted friend, counselor, pastor to flush out. Find one of us. Get some time. What does it mean? Help me understand my acceptance in Christ. Help me understand how the imputed righteousness of Christ applies to my life in this area. I gave some inappropriate responses to this great exchange. As we close... What is an appropriate response? I think an appropriate response is this. It's a response of gratitude. Gospel-generated gratitude. 
a response of absolute awe and ever-growing wonder and amazement that God would bruise and crush His one and only Son so that we, deserving enemies, might become His children and receive the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father. The work of Christ on the cross was absolutely necessary. It was the only means by which God could become our Father. And we're now adopted sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our prayerful desire, our desire as a pastoral team, is for there to be an evangelistic culture amongst the lives of the members of Cornerstone Baptist Church. Across the lives, every member, we have this contagious evangelistic culture. And what we realize this means that, that we have to know the gospel. We've got to know this core content of the message. What is the truth of the gospel? And what is the error of many false gospels that are present in our culture? But it also means this. It means that we love and embrace this good news. It's like if I had a cup up here and this was full of water and I just kept pouring and kept pouring, eventually the cup would start to overflow. It would start to spill out. And that, that is what we want. Oh, that God would make that true in our lives. That we would be so enthralled, so enamored by His amazing love and acceptance in Christ that we're unable to contain it. It spills out. The gospel message is a message of acceptance. In Christ, we are accepted by God. Consider this again. Acceptance. Not because of your righteousness, but because of His. On your own, you would never attain it. Acceptance. Acceptance as if you'd never sinned. It's done. It's been paid for. Whether you're feeling this morning more like the prodigal or more like the older brother, because of what God has done for you in Christ, there is a place for you at the table. Are you willing to come? Are you willing to rest? Are you willing to join the family?